Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. You'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.fm, every Monday at 10 a.m. That's 10 a.m. New York, East Coast, American time. <laughs> Could be any time in your part of the world. you got to figure it out. Uh, I teach and architecture in New York, and we're going to talk about architecture today. And a lot of our students come from China, and due to the virus, a lot of them are not here. They're sitting in front of computers at home, paying full tuition, wondering, what the hell is this all about? But anyway, if I do a class at 5 o'clock in the evening, it could be 5 o'clock in the morning for them. So we're very up in the air. We're working on it. We, we hope to make it work. And we're uh, uh, sometimes I just do the course twice. Anyway, you can find all of our back shows, including this one in a few days, at visionaries.podbean.com. And I'll mention that again later at the end of the show. And today I want to talk about an architect named Louis Kahn. So don't be scared off. Uh, Louis Kahn is major modern architect. And he is ranked up there with Frank Lloyd Wright as one of the most important American architects. And uh, maybe one of the most important architects in the world and modernism. It's interesting. Uh, you know, this is always changing. And uh, um, there's a Seinfeld in which he's having a dispute with someone who has a T-shirt, World's Greatest Dad. And Seinfeld says, well, you know, maybe the objective for that is uh, uh, the object the Criteria for that is not that objective. But anyway, um, some people rank Thomas Jefferson as uh, the most important American architect. And certainly there's, there's an argument there, but we won't go into that today. But I want to talk about Kahn in terms of two modern architectural traditions, the École des Beaux-Arts or the Beaux-Arts style, and modern architecture. And Kahn was educated at the University of Pennsylvania in the tradition of the uh, Beaux-Arts, but then practiced as a modern architect. And uh, this is something I'm knowledgeable about. Um, Kahn was part of what's called the Philadelphia School. It was a flowering of architecture at the University of Pennsylvania between about 1955 and 1965, which is when I was there. Got there in 59, graduated in 66. And I'm actually working on a book on the Philadelphia School and uh, more, well, that'll be a couple of years off. 
right now I need some major grants. <laughs> it turns out, you know, what's the advance going to be on the book? No, <laughs> we have to pay the publisher. <laughs> That's academia. That's why they have grants. But anyway, the uh, reason I want to talk about this is I have a, a book on Louis Kahn just came out. Louis Kahn, Architecture as Philosophy. So, published by Monticelli Press, M-O-N-A-C-E-L-L-I. So, look up uh, Monticelli Press or Publishers in Google. It'll pop right up, and you can also get the book on Amazon. And subtitle of the book is Architecture as Philosophy. So what do I mean by that? So I like to say to my students, there's only one philosophical question, and that is, it's got two parts. Who are we and what are we doing here? <laughs> and if you think about it, you realize uh, that's what it all comes down to. In my global architecture course, we use that to introduce some very different notions of who we are. And just to digress, there may be several great notions. I forget how many. I divide them up different ways. But, well, we were created by a creator who left instructions that we are to obey. And I sort of leave it up to my students to think about who am I talking about? And of course, that would be the biblical traditions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Uh, another one might be we're material creatures that arrived here through the accidents of natural selection into a world that began 14 billion years ago in a big bang. And our consciousness is the firing of neurons. Well, that's materialism, which sort of dominates much of our culture today. Or, this world is an illusion, and standing behind that illusion is a transcendent oneness that we can come in touch with or realize our unification with. And that would be Buddhism, other Eastern thought. Or um, material that spirit occupies all things so that there's spirit and we are natural creatures there's spirit in us and spirit in the natural world and all of this can exist in a flow of harmony that would be Shintoism and Taoism Japanese and Chinese traditions so those are Four very different notions of who we are and what are we doing here. Maybe we'll tie that back when we get to the end. But back to architecture as philosophy. So 
Hmm. What is philosophy? Philosophy is the intellectual study of the nature of our reality, the nature of the world, the nature of us, and how the two relate. But isn't that also what art does? Including architecture, the mother of the arts. And you do philosophy sitting in a chair. Hmm. You read books on philosophy, you write philosophy, sitting in a chair. You experience architecture. Well, let's change the emphasis on that. You experience architecture. We are born in, grow up in, educated in, live our lives, raise our families, pursue our careers, die in architecture. So that we don't just stand in front of a building and look at the composition of the facade. And some architecture critics who maybe come too much from the painting world might do that. But we actually move through the building. Think about it. Are you a little bit into architecture? Are you aware of Frank Gehry's Bilbao Museum? How many people have been there? Hopefully some. If you read about the, about the Bilbao, it's, what does it look like? Whoa! <laughs> and if you're not familiar with it, Frank Gehry sometimes admits it, sometimes denies it, but the way he does his architecture is he takes a piece of paper and crumples it. There's uh, symptoms about that. And then it's scanned. 3D scanned into the computer and then they start working with it. Well, okay, that's important. You know, it's maybe saying that there is not, is not an orderly coherence to us and our world. Our world is fundamentally discordant. We are fundamentally incoherent. But the role of Frank Gehry's architecture in saying that should go beyond what we experience looking at a photograph or even standing in front of the building. What is it like seeing art in the building? It's a museum. What is the experience of that building. And what is that experience, and I'm going to use unfortunate words here, telling us, saying to us, because experience doesn't tell, it doesn't say, it is. So what is that experience? <clears throat> so in that sense, is what I mean by architecture is philosophy.
that Louis Kahn had a particular take on all of what I've just been saying. Kahn was born in 1901 in Europe, came to Philadelphia as a little boy. So he's a Philadelphia American growing up in Philadelphia, spent his career there, taught for a while at Yale, but always lived in Philadelphia. And decided to be an architect and attended the University of Pennsylvania, which was a Beaux-Arts school. What's Beaux-Arts? <laughs> Again, to try to make this simple, Beaux-Arts is that old architecture that's got columns. So in New York, Grand Central Station, Metropolitan Museum, 42nd Street Library are Beaux-Arts buildings. In Washington, the Jefferson Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, and the particularly the National Gallery by John Russell Pope. So that was Kahn's education. And the great teacher and Beaux-Arts architect he studied with was Paul Philippe Cray. C-R-E-T. So when you're in Washington and you go to the Vietnam, Vietnam Memorial by Lynn, sort of to your right is a beautiful little neoclassical building. That's the Pan Am building by Paul Philippe Cray, his first important building. And also in Washington, the Shakespeare Folger Library, also by Cray. Uh, and Kahn worked on that building from the 1920s, is a later Beaux-Arts building <coughs> in the style, excuse me, of what is called strip classicism, <coughs> in which the Beaux-Arts architects removed ornament from their buildings in hopes that it could aesthetically compete with modern architecture. Didn't work. There's a brief period. If you're a New Yorker, uh, the Brooklyn Public Library is a beautiful example of strip classicism. Anyway, so Kahn's educated in this Beaux-Arts style. He graduates into a world of emerging modern architecture. One of his classmates, Norman Rice, is the first American to go to Europe and work for Le Corbusier. And he brought back these books, Le Corbusier's books. And Kahn said of the 1930s, I lived in a city called Corbu. Now, just a quick digression. When we list the uh, masters of modern architecture, maybe we're not supposed to do that anymore because they're heroic figures. And are we supposed to think heroically. But you sort of list them as Mies van der Rohe, the glass box, Le Corbusier, the white box, um, Walter Gropius, functionalism, and sometimes we add Alvar Aalto, brick. An argument was then made Kahn should be one more in this pantheon. 
Now we're more likely to say Kahn is one of the most important American architects along with Frank Lloyd Wright. <clears throat> now getting back to this Beaux-Arts or neoclassicism, there are people that argue that Thomas Jefferson should be in that pantheon, but that's another digression. So now we have these two styles, and we're going to see, <coughs> excuse me, style's not the right word. These two styles, Beaux-Arts and modern architecture. Beaux-Arts is an historical revival style. In other words, these buildings are based on Roman buildings. The National Gallery of Washington, D.C. is the Roman Pantheon with two wings stuck on it. The Grand Central Station and most Union stations in the United States done in the turn of the last century are Roman baths. And <clears throat> Beaux-Arts architecture comes from Rome, which itself has roots in Greece, which is then developed and modified through the Renaissance and Baroque. So what is Beaux-Arts architecture saying? And <clears throat> recall, I said we shouldn't be saying, saying. What do we experience in a Beaux-Arts building? We experience that we are historically rooted creatures. What are we? Get back to my question. Who are we and what are we doing here? And Beaux-Arts is saying, we are creatures rooted in our history. We're Westerners. We're rooted in Rome, which itself has influences from Greece rooted in Greek democracy, in the Roman will to conquer space, in the Renaissance science of Leonardo da Vinci, the Baroque science of Isaac Newton, and our lives are meaningful, rooted, make sense, anchored to something in this historical rootedness. Now we get 1920s, 30s. And the modernists start to say, wait a minute, didn't the Roman Empire end 1500 years ago? Aren't we as much rooted in the Napoleonic Code, English common law, as we are in Roman law? Doesn't our literature as much come from uh, England, Europe, Asia, as it does from Greece and Rome? Isn't our music rooted in Africa, um, Central Europe, uh, Southern United States, as much as it is in classicism. And 
in fact, isn't our science rooted not in Newton, Kepler, Taco Brahe, Copernicus, but rather in the here and now. In other words, do the experiment and see what the case is. There's a proposition that every body attracts every other body with a force proportional to the product of their masses and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them. Let's go up on a Thai building and drop some ball bearings and find out. <laughs> and if we determine that the moon orbiting the Earth is following the exact same laws, let's look at that orbit. Let's measure the exact position of the moon. And it doesn't matter what Copernicus thought. Let's, it's the moon's here and now. It's not historical. So, modernism says we are not rooted in a historical past. We are rooted in a here and now. And the foundations of our knowledge, our education, should be what reason and science tell us, <coughs> excuse me, here and now. So, but we're kind of nervous in our world because modernism, well, let's say that um, the Beaux-Arts, when applied, that kind of thinking, historical rootedness, is applied culturally, can lead to a inappropriate nationalism and traditionalism. Modernism, when pushed to the extreme, can lead to nihilism. We're not rooted in anything. There is no meaning. Might as well be hedonistic. And these two traditions vie with each other. Kahn began his career in the modern tradition, finding it thin, insubstantial, both physically with its glass boxes, but also metaphysically, this lack of rootedness. In no way he was going to go back to the traditionalism of the Beaux-Arts, but he did come to <clears throat> revive the rich forms of Rome. But most importantly, he found a third way. So what do we mean by this third way? So now we move over and we look at <coughs> Joseph Campbell. <clears throat> so 1947, <coughs> Joseph Campbell published Hero with a Thousand Faces. In this book, 
he looks at the hero journey and finds that it has an archetypal pattern. So what is the hero journey? It's the story of a hero. So it's the story of Christ, Buddha, Moses, Mohammed. It's a fairy tale. It's Jack and the Beanstalk, boy with the seven-league boots, the dog with the saucer arms. It's literature. Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain, James Joyce, Finnegan's Wake. And what Campbell deciphers is that all of these stories, <coughs> excuse me, all of these stories begin with our character, our protagonist, in ordinary reality. And then there's a call to adventure. Something happens. The next thing you know, they're off to a realm of fabulous forces where they encounter hero helpers, a father figure, tests which they have to overcome, and eventually they win a decisive victory and return to enrich the world. That was the textbook. Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces, was the textbook for George Lucas's Star Wars. Luke Skywalker opening. He's there sitting, yearning, the twin sons in the background. I don't belong on this stupid farm. I have a calling for something greater. And then he buys these droids and one of them projects the hologram, Princess Leia. Obi-Wan, help me. Could that be old Ben? He goes off, finds old Ben, and next thing I know, they're off on the Millennium Falcon to a realm of space adventures. He encounters hero helpers, C-3PO, R2-D2, his twin, which is an archetypal theme, Princess Leia, and his father. Darth Vader destroys the Death Star, wins a decisive victory, returns to aid the just cause of the rebels. Well, um, Campbell's point is that these are typal patterns. Here's another one um, Dying and Resurrecting God, born of a virgin, associated with a cross. Yes, that's Jesus. But every religion has one. Tammuz for the Mesopotamians, Quaxquotl for the Mesoamericans, Osiris for the Greeks, etc. <clears throat> what if we can dissociate that from you have to believe that this happened 2,020 years ago and rather this is an experience reverberates with us that we can experience a death to our worldly self and a rebirth of our spiritual self. And so if we look at Mondrian, Brancusi, Miro, Paul Clay, Picasso, they're not nihilistic. They're not just abstract. 
they are recreating these mythological themes independent of a specific cultural past and one that's accessible in our modern world so that the vertical lines in the Mondrian are life and rebirth. The horizontal lines are death and the balance of the vertical and the horizontal are the play of these two against each other. So what Louis Kahn does is look for a third way and says that beyond the historical rootedness in one particular culture Rome, of the Beaux-Arts and the nihilism and thinness of modern architecture can be instead an archetypal realm. So let's see how he might do that. A Doing a museum, a Beaux-Arts architect might say, well, uh, let's pick an historical precedent. Let's take a pantheon and stick two wings on it. And there we have John Russell Pope's National Gallery in Washington, D.C., 1941. Okay. What if the art doesn't fit in the, in the pantheon? What if we're doing a school? You don't need a pantheon. Well, what does a Roman school look like? Well, we don't know. So how might you do a school? Well, let's start with what's going to happen in the building. Well, we've got classes. How many? We're going to have 20 classrooms, 20 foot four square, 24 square feet each. Okay. And then we have a multi-purpose space, a cafeteria, an auditorium, and a gym. They're big. And we got to get in and we got to get out. Okay. So let's take some colored paper and cut out 20 squares at, you know, a scale, eighth inch equals a foot. And let's cut out bigger squares for the auditorium and the gym, etc. And let's make at a scale the site the client has. And let's look at this site. Where's the bus stop? Where's the parking? Where's the subway stop? And let's see how... Uh, and then now let's make a flow diagram. People come into the building. What do they do? They come in. They go through a metal detector. They go to their locker, they go to their homeroom, they go to first period, they go to gym, they line up for cafeteria. Okay, let's make a flow diagram so that all that works and you don't have the cafeteria line cutting across the entrance at the metal detectors. So let's see how we have to move through the building and flow through the building. So now we start to put together the site, the colored paper of the spaces, the flow diagram, and we get the arrangement of the building. Then we start to talk to the engineer. The engineer says, well, you know, I'd like, uh, you got to do this in concrete. That's what's available this time. Right now, the steel contractors are tied up. 
So we're going to do it in concrete. And concrete would like a 20-foot grid, but you got 24-foot square classrooms. You don't want columns in the middle of the rooms. So yeah, we can make our grid 24 feet. We just have to make the beams a bit bigger. That's okay. And we begin to lay this out. And now we've got to keep the cold air out. So we put glass around it. We got our building. What do we leave out? Who are these children? What are they here for? Khan begins every project with the question, what does this building want to be? What is a school? He says, school began with a person under a tree talking. And a group gathered around this person. And they didn't realize this person was a teacher and they were students. But they realized this is a good experience. And we'd like our children to have this experience. Well, how do we know if our children go to that tree next Thursday that that person will be there? We've got to create the institution of school. You have to create school. But now we know what we want in a school. The school is a place where we gather to find out who we are, become part of our culture, achieve our identity, become capable of being responsible participants in our society and our culture, both as participants and leaders. And now we might ask a question. Is a school a place where you identify and manifest your personal identity? Or is a school a place where you become acclimatized to and a participant of your culture? Both are legitimate. But you can't design a school, we can't design a school, until we know which of those, or maybe another one, or some combination thereof, it's about. <coughs> so Khan says, just like the hero journey, what is the archetypal underlying meaning of the school? And now I know how to start the design. So that's what we mean by architecture as philosophy. So I want to mention again my two books, um, two of my books. I got more. We can talk about more in the future. Forty years ago, a uh, few years, well, when Khan died, 19, what's the year? Hang on. I should know. I keep writing books about him. 1974. I wrote a little uh, memorial tribute in which I referred to him as a great spiritual master as well as a great architect. Nobody would publish it. And eventually I showed it to a colleague and she said, here's the problem. You haven't made the case. You can't just say that. You have to show that. That's good writing, right? You don't say it, you show it. So you don't say, our protagonist was nervous, you know. You say, our protagonist fiddled with his cigarette. <laughs> Nobody smokes anymore, but 
I'm thinking of a 1930s movie. So I said, you know, Khan never wrote much, but he gave, he lectured. And his last great lecture was at my school, and I had a tape of it. Lectures were all similar, but he'd do variants on them. And sometimes they would be recorded and transcribed, and a Japanese magazine would put the <coughs> transcription in the back. I had all that. And I also was true. I was studying Tai Chi with Chiming Chang, a great Tai Chi teacher, great doctor, professor, Professor Chiming Chang. And I was studying Taoism. I was reading Lao Tzu, commentaries on it, Quan Tzu. And I was studying Buddhism with Chungam uh, Trumpa Rinpoche. And I was studying mythology with Campbell, and Campbell is very strong on Buddhism. And um, I realized nobody outside of architecture could in any way penetrate Khan. Nobody in architecture knew what I knew about mysticism, Taoism, and Buddhism. If anybody was going to explain Khan's spiritual thought, it was going to have to be me, and it was going to be a book. So, I happen to have it here, so let me look for the publication date. So I said, okay, I'm going to work on this. And uh, for several years, 1979, five years after uh, Khan died, what I did was, I took all of Khan's talks, got them transcribed, typed them up. <laughs> this was not easy, it was before computers. A lot of scissors and scotch tape. I didn't have a Xerox machine. There's a candy store downstairs with a, a sort of Xerox machine in the back that I was running all the time, paid them a fortune. Um, and I put together the ideal Con lecture, which is sort of a genesis. Um, it begins joy and touch, wonder, realization, the immeasurable and the measurable, knowledge, order, silence and light. So it's like a genesis. And so that's about 25 brief you know, half a page, poetic statement by Kahn, interspersed with illustrations. The design was inspired by Fang in English, book, um, translation of the Tao Te Ching. Still in print, still the book to read. Everybody has to have that book. Anyway, uh, and then my commentary explaining it, and then a little bit on Kahn's buildings. So that's Between Silence and Light, Spirit in the Architecture of Louis Icahn. Shambhala, which is a Buddhist press, founded by Chungam Trumpa Rinpoche, and um, his followers. Forgetting the founder's name right now, he's retired, he's still around. Anyway, 
They've kept it in print for 40 years. Thank you, Shambhala. And on finishing the book, I said, you know, I should do a book on how Khan's buildings present his spiritual philosophy. I did how his words present this spiritual philosophy. How does his buildings do it? And I did some work on that, but this is, book was going to be very dependent on illustrations. And I had a hard time finding the right illustrator. I had these brilliant former students who said, I'll do it, I'll do it. I love, you know, your work on Khan. And, whoops, I'm too busy. <laughs> Two years later, so next thing you know, is literally um, decades. So year 2000, I said, okay, I'm going to write this book. And I got it done by, I don't know, 2003. I couldn't find a publisher. Well, two years ago, I got a publisher, Monticelli Press. And they found someone to do great illustrations and the layout. So it's a beautiful book. Louis Kahn. Architecture as Philosophy, and you'll find it on Amazon and Monticelli Press. Now, you're not an architect. Why would you want a book on architecture? When I did Between Silence and Light, we hoped the book might take off like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. That was one of the inspirations for my book. Now, that's an old book. Uh, it's probably before most of you were born, but I'm sure you've heard of it. And it's a book you should read. But most of the people reading that book don't have motorcycles. <laughs> and don't do maintenance. Uh, it's about how to live your life. And the same thing is true about Between Silence and Light. It's a book about who we are and what we're doing here. Now, the book, Louis Kahn, Architecture and Philosophy, think of it as imagine... You read a book about Francis Coppola and how he put his movies together. You don't have to be a filmmaker to be interested in that. It's really fascinating. Uh, Martin Scorsese is right now. There's this online organization that does, what is it, The Great Masters? And they have leading figures. What's her name in photography? Um... I'm terrible at remembering names. Malcolm Bladwell on how to how to write, and uh, Martin Scorsese, how to be a film director, and people. Most of the people taking that course are not going to be film directors, but we want to know how these things work. Think of software. I mean, it's everywhere. It underlies everything we do. Does anybody know what it is? How it works? I mean. We want to know how a car works. Not that we could fix it. But we do want to know there's explosions in there and the piston goes up and down, right? And <laughs> it goes through a transmission. Uh, you know, <laughs> hopefully. Uh, we want to have, you know, a little bit of awareness. And particularly on a sophisticated philosophical level. In other words, Khan isn't... Frank Lloyd Wright, Louis Kahn, Frank Gehry, these aren't people making warehouses to stick art or children or schools or apartments into. They are 
fundamentally exploring the underlying nature and meaning of our world and who we are and how we fit in it. How do they do that? What are they coming up with? That's what my book's about. So let's leave it at that. Thank you for tuning in. This is John LaBelle. You've been listening to Visionaries. You find us every Monday, 10 a.m. New York Eastern Time on prn.fm, the Progressive Radio Network. And you'll find all of our back shows at visionaries.podbean.com. See you next week. Oh, 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 oh